Hello, folks. Welcome to the premium podcast series for the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison, and today I will be interviewing Will Milam. Will is a sergeant with the Prince George's County uh, Sheriff's Department in Maryland. In addition, he is the president of his local FOP Lodge and the vice president of the state FOP Lodge. What Will and I will be discussing uh, will be the broad topic of what happened in Maryland that brought about the repeal of the first statewide peace officer's Bill of Rights. It's a fascinating tale with a lot of twists and turns, uh, and for a time it appeared that police officers in Maryland were facing not just the repeal of the Bill of Rights, but the replacement of the Bill of Rights with nothing, no procedural protections related to the job. Will will talk to you about how uh, peace officers in Maryland managed to avoid that result, what the new system of disciplinary procedures in Maryland will look like, and I think most importantly, uh, we conclude the interview with some very important advice from Will to any of you who are out there who are facing police reform legislation. Will is an old friend. He has spoken with us uh, for us at LRIS for many, many years, uh, and he's very, very knowledgeable about the legislative process in Maryland, both uh, the above-board legislative process and what went on behind the scenes. I think you're going to get a kick out of this interview. With that, I give you Will Milam. Will, welcome to the podcast. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, to join you today to, to talk about some of the things that we have going on here in Maryland. And, and we want to get right into that as quickly as we can. But first, uh, a little bit about you uh, as a person. Uh, tell us how you uh, came to a law enforcement career. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I knew from a, a very young age that I wanted to to be a police officer. Um, you know, I had this, uh, who was a deputy sheriff in South Carolina. And whenever we would you know, travel down South, uh, I would always see him in his uniform, uh, or sit in his police car. Uh, and, and that sort of carried through high school. And I always enjoyed talking to the dare officers, uh, in high school. Uh, and I knew that I wanted to, you know, sort of commit myself to a life of serving others. So, with nearly 20 years on the job at this point, uh, I have no uh, regrets about that decision. Uh, some of the proudest moments uh, of my life have involved wearing a uniform and serving others. Oh, that's great. And how did you get involved in the FOP? And, and right now, what role do you have both at the lodge and statewide levels? Sure. Uh, I got involved very early on in my career uh, in the FOP. Uh, I've worked for a, a county in Southern Maryland where uh, the local president there really sort of uh, took me under his wing and, and showed me how to do this work. And currently I'm the elected president uh, of the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge 112, uh, which is in Maryland. Um, you know, we are located right outside of Washington, D.C., uh, in Prince George's County. And, and there I oversee uh, the daily operations of our lodge hall and our facilities. Uh, I administer the collective bargaining agreement from the union side. 
Uh, I sit as a representative on the county's pension uh, board of trustees and the medical advisory board for disability cases. Uh, fortunately, I have a full-time uh, vice president and support staff at the lodge. And, you know, they're really incredible at their jobs and they allow me to sort of focus on the, the big picture for the lodge. So I'm really appreciative of that. Um, you know, when I first started eight years ago, I didn't have any full-time employees and uh, we didn't have a lodge. So I, along with, you know, one of our retired members really shouldered most of the burden alone. Uh, but today we're in really good shape. And at the state level, uh, I'm the elected first uh, vice president for the Maryland State Lodge. Uh, I, along with the second uh, vice president and the president, oversee the actions of the, the Maryland State Lodge, uh, whether that's traveling around the state to assist local lodges, uh, or, you know, participating in TV or radio or news interviews or uh, responding to media requests or working on legislation in our state capital of Annapolis, uh, that job has me incredibly busy, too. So, um, you know, uh, I took office back in the fall uh, for the state lodge, and, and we've been operating at 100 miles per hour ever since. Yeah, I, no doubt. We will hear about that more in a moment. Uh, for our listeners, if you're not uh, familiar with Prince George's County, Prince George's County is an urban county, right, Well, Yes, it is. Yep. It's an urban county, like I said, right outside of Washington, D.C. We have about a million residents there. Uh, we have the Washington football team plays its home uh, games uh, in our county. Their uh, FedEx field is, is located in Prince George's County. Uh, we have, um, you know, casinos, the MGM National Harbor, the University of Maryland uh, is located in our county. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty diverse area, uh, a lot of people there. And, and for our listeners, I, I went to law school in Washington, D.C., and I lived for a time in a place called Suitland Terrace in Prince George's County. Uh, and Will, uh, many years after the fact, uh, told me that I had to be out of my mind. I think I'm leaving out an adjective or two there, Will, uh, to live in Suitland Terrace. Uh, yeah, yeah I, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't recommend that today. Uh, pro probably back when you were going through law school, probably was better of an area. But today, I would, I would not recommend you live there. So, uh, well, let's turn to the subject at hand. Uh, the uh, the actions of the Maryland legislature a couple of months ago with respect to police reform. And on the plate for the legislature was Maryland's Peace Officers Bill of Rights. Uh, what can you tell us about the adoption of the Bill of Rights, which I think was the first Peace Officers Bill of Rights in the country? Yes, it was. You know, the, the, the sentiment, uh, you know, was different back then. I mean, you know, complaints uh, were rising, um, and there needed to be a consistent uh, disciplinary mechanism that was uniform across the state. Uh, smaller jurisdictions had little to no job protection. Uh, if you weren't in a large area, uh, if you weren't policing in a large area, you likely didn't have a civil service commission. Uh, complaints would come in, and officers would be fired. Uh, with little or no due process. And, and you know, in particular, African-American officers were uh, disproportionately disciplined and terminated back then. You know, if, if the chief uh, cousin needed a job, they'd find a way to fire an officer to open up a position. Uh, so we really needed a uniform process. Uh, and this sort of hodgepodge of, of local regulations led 
to every jurisdiction really handling discipline differently. So, um, you know, in many cases with no due process and unfair treatment. Um, you know, I know Maryland had looked at, and I wasn't around back then uh, during this fight, but I know that we looked at other states and what they were trying to get past, uh, similar legislative packages. Uh, and we tried to get something through the legislature for several years leading up to the passage. Uh, but, you know, the chiefs didn't want any process where they didn't have total control. So that sort of caused uh, the delay. Um, so all those factors played into, uh, you know, us coming online with the, the law enforcement officers' bill of rights. Now, in recent years, and even prior to uh, 2020 and the death of George Floyd, there's been legislative pressure in Maryland to either eliminate or significantly amend the Bill of Rights. How has that come about, that the attitudes in Maryland have changed over time to the point where there has been this multi-year push to do something about the Bill of Rights? Well, that's correct. Um, you know, I would say that the, the push to amend or repeal uh, the Bill of Rights has been brewing uh, for a long time, I'd say for the last seven to 15 years, we've really seen an uptick uh, in the desire to repeal the law. Uh, I think the reasoning behind the desire to repeal uh, was largely unfounded and didn't make sense. Uh, essentially, the Bill of Rights, which you know is a measure that provides due process for law enforcement officers involved in disciplinary process for administrative charges, was largely misunderstood by our legislature. Uh, and by the advocates for repeal, even. Uh, somehow they were under the belief that uh, the Bill of Rights made it more difficult to discipline officers, or uh, in some cases that it prevented the chiefs or the sheriffs from firing officers that needed to be fired. Uh, as you know, that couldn't be farther from the truth. The Bill of Rights just provided a framework for how discipline was to be handled. Uh, it provided a statute of limitations, for example, uh, for charges that are going to be brought, usually a year from the time where the department became aware of the allegation. Uh, set limits on discovery uh, and when that needed to be turned over. Prescribed how our hearing board was to be conducted. Uh, provided uh, the officer with the right to obtain counsel and other employment-related rights. In fact, most counties or municipalities uh, have contained within their own personnel codes an employee's bill of rights. Uh, which does the same thing for the county or city employees. In fact, the county in which I work, Prince George's County, perhaps has a better county bill of rights in some ways than the than what the law enforcement officers' bill of rights provided. Uh, you know, because there was a desire for uniformity when the law came to pass in the 70s, and uh, because some municipalities and counties did not have an employee bill of rights, they created this statewide bill of rights to handle the disciplinary process for all of Marylanders, you know, all Maryland police officers. Uh, during this session, though, we found that legislators simply didn't understand the Bill of Rights. One legislator told us, quote, everything you guys are explaining to me makes sense. And what I've read seems to jive uh, with that. Uh, but this Bill of Rights has become too toxic and simply not understood by my colleagues. Uh, and because I need to be reelected uh, and because we have, you know, been given the false choice of either voting for this, uh, repeal or being labeled a racist, I have to vote to repeal it. Uh, and we were told that by, by several legislators. So I would say that this push has been around for a while. Uh, we've been successful at fighting it off for many years, but the train was, was already out of the station. 
Did the Freddie Gray incident play any role in the pressures that were coming on to the Bill of Rights? You know, I think so. Uh, I think, uh, you know, obviously the Gray situation up in Baltimore uh, led to uh, a lot of unrest up there. Uh, and what we saw this legislative session, and, and frankly, for the for the past 10 legislative sessions, uh, is uh, the, the major push uh, to repeal has really come out of Baltimore. Uh, the senator uh, that introduced this legislative package to repeal uh, the Bill of Rights was from Baltimore. And obviously, you know, with Baltimore having, uh, you know, a progressive prosecutor that they've elected who was, you know, supportive of stripping law enforcement officers of their rights, I do think that the, the great case and, and associated cases up in Baltimore uh, we saw a lot of uh, local Baltimore uh, politicians, and, and you know now the Senate president is from Baltimore as well. Uh, so we saw a lot of Baltimore influence in the repeal. Well, let's talk about the political makeup of the Maryland legislature. Uh, how many, what percent are D's, what percent are R's? Well, the vast majority are Democrats. Maryland has a, a veto-proof majority with Democrats. Uh, you know, accounting for most of the legislature. Uh, prior to this legislative session, the longest serving Senate president uh, for a state legislature in the country, Mike Miller, he lost his battle with cancer and passed away. Mike had been a staunch supporter of law enforcement uh, and, w- and was a friend to Maryland's law enforcement community for many years. You know, he was replaced by uh, Bill Ferguson from Baltimore, the gentleman I just mentioned. Uh, and, you know, prior to that, the former long-serving Speaker of the House, Mike Bush, also a law enforcement supporter, uh, passed away as well. Um, you know, so the legislature, for one reason or another, had started to, to trend more progressive, uh, you know, really, in our view, making this year ripe for a repeal. Uh, let's talk about the process in the legislature. How long was the bill pending in the legislature? So the bill was introduced uh, in January and passed in April. But before that, immediately following you know our election to the to the Fraternal Order of Police State Board, uh, the newly uh, elected executive board uh, began sort of charting a course to defeat some of these extreme reforms that we were already hearing from Annapolis. Um, you know, rather than customarily convening the legislative committee at the start of the legislative session in January, which is what we normally would have done, the committee started its work in September. Uh, and the committee participated in, in both the House and the Senate work groups over the summer. We testified uh, on proposed police reform packages. Uh, we held weekly meetings to develop uh, the state FOP's approach to combating, you know, some of these reforms. Uh, we began entertaining bids to meet with, you know, uh, and meeting with public relations firms to assist us with grassroots campaigns aimed at you know, strengthening uh, public opinion of Maryland's law enforcement community. So we knew uh, that we needed to get a head start on this. Uh, but in the summer, uh, JPR 14, uh, uh, you know, was was introduced uh, in the Senate uh, and was proposed by Senator Carter from Baltimore, uh, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and it was the Law Enforcement Accountability and Discipline Lead Act of 2021. Uh, and it was supposed to significantly revise and change the LEOPR, but it didn't call for a full repeal. Um, you know, the proposal altered uh, and expanded various requirements under the LEOBR, um, the duties 
of the Maryland Police Training Commission uh, were, were changed. Uh, provisions relating to the disclosure of certain information, um, you know, under the, uh, the Maryland Public Information Act. Uh, provisions regarding uh, the disclosure of personnel records. Um, all those things. Um, and, and so that would have been effective July 1st of 2021. Um, there was no requirement that a complaint be signed uh, and sworn to under a penalty of perjury. And this is, this is part of, you know, that lead act that I'm, that I'm describing. Uh, in that act, there was no requirement that a complaint be signed or even sworn to under the penalty of perjury. Um, it authorized the police accountability board, uh, the prosecutor or representative, of an aggrieved party to file a complaint against the police officer. Um, it extended the complaint filing deadline from 366 days to three years, um, authorized civilian employees of a law enforcement agency to serve uh, as the investigating or interrogating officer following a complaint. Uh, it reduced the amount of time for an officer to obtain an attorney uh, in an internal investigation from five days to three days. Um, and, and a whole bunch of other things. I mean, the list goes on and on. So uh, that was that was proposed in the summer, um, as well as, uh, you know, in the House, uh, similar to the Senate's work group, the House had its own work group, uh, the Police Reform and Accountability uh, work group. Uh, and, and they wanted to require independent investigation uh, of incidents involving departmental shooting, um, create a statewide use of force standard. Uh, create a criminal penalties uh, for officer who violates uh, statewide use of force standards, requiring the police training commission to maintain a database for terminated officers, um, you know, establishing a duty to intervene and, and a whole bunch of other stuff there too. So this, while it was introduced in January and passed in April, this was something that, again, the, the train had already left the station on. We saw this coming uh, in the summer. We were prepared for it. Uh, we testified on it. Uh, there was public testimony. And we thought, you know, the, the, the lead act w- was going to sort of be the law of the land or, you know, obviously with the session coming up that we would make some tweaks to it. We, we did not see, uh, however, after the summer, the full repeal um, on the docket. And, and so we were sort of taken by surprise with that. And when does the full repeal, instead of these... Uh, what I would think of as fairly significant cutbacks, but still leaving the bones of the Bill of Rights in place. When do you move from that sort of discussion to the discussion in the legislature being full repeal? Yeah, so so that's that's what took us all by surprise because we had gone into the session, um, you know, sort of anticipating tweaking this, this lead act. Um, two weeks into the session, we, we thought it strange that we had not seen the lead act yet. Uh, the bill had not been dropped yet. And so we wait another week, uh, and we see nothing. And then all of a sudden, uh, in the fourth week of the session, uh, here comes the, the bill to repeal the law enforcement officer's bill of rights, Senate bill, uh, 627. Uh, and so, you know, we immediately went to work there, but that, that, that sort of, it, it took us all by surprise because, um, you know, in the summer, we, we were completely prepared to work on fixing the LEOPR. Uh, we did not uh, gather that they were intending to repeal it. So, um, you know, they, they a little bit of gamesmanship by them. And uh, so 
The legislature actually convenes in January in Maryland. Is that right? Yes. Uh, and by January, are you looking at a full repeal as what may be coming out of the legislature? Not until the end of January, uh, because we we were we were waiting for the for the bill, and we anticipated it would be the Lead Act. Uh, we were waiting for that to drop, and we thought it was going to drop uh, within the first few days of the session because so much work had been done on it over the summer. Uh, we testified for weeks uh, in the Senate and the House work groups uh, to, to get this um, this framework of a of a new law enforcement officers' bill of rights uh, sort of up and running for the session. Uh, so we thought we'd see that right away. Uh, and it wasn't until, you know, sort of week two, week three, where we didn't see that, uh, where we started to get worried. Uh, and we started to hear some chatter about the repeal, and, and then, you know, it came. And uh, when do you finally, in this process, when do you finally see the repeal as a legislative proposal? We saw that at the end of January. I'd say the end of the third week of the session, beginning of the fourth week, is when we saw Senate Bill 627 introduced. Now, a little bit of background for our listeners. My impression is that Maryland is one of the strongest FOP states in the country, at least in terms of the number of police officers, the percentage of total police officers who are represented by the FOP. Is that right, that the FOP represents by far the lion's share of represented officers in Maryland? That's right. Yeah, the, the the Maryland State Lodge uh, and all of our local lodges, we we represent some twenty thousand um, sworn and retired police officers. I think uh, there's somewhere in the area of, of between eighteen and, and nineteen active, uh, you know, officers here uh, in Maryland, uh, and then with the retired numbers, you know, that takes that up over twenty thousand uh, people. So yes, the the line. Uh, share of uh, police officers in the state of Maryland are represented by the Fraternal Order of Police. I, I would assume, though, that there are some non-FOP groups out there as well, right? Yeah, yeah. You'll have you'll have deputy sheriff associations um, throughout the state. You'll have uh, sort of other uh, groups. I think one of our uh, one of our um, sheriff's offices is represented by AFSCME. Um So you'll see you'll see little splinters like that, but. For the most part, it's fraternal order police. Uh, were all these other groups, uh, were you working together uh, with all these other groups? Were you speaking as one voice when, once you see this repeal is uh, potentially on the table? Well, the, the other groups, they're so small that they don't really have an impact. Uh, and so everything sort of lives and dies with the fraternal order of police here. Um, those splinter groups are, are mainly focused on their local um, politics and their local contracts and things like that. Uh, so as far as as far as who sort of spoke for police officers during the session, that was going to be primarily the, the fraternal order of police. I will add, though, that, um, you know, the, the police chiefs and uh, sheriffs, they have their own sort of. Uh, organization that represents them, the Maryland Police and Sheriff Association. And as we dive more into this conversation, we will, I'll tell you about how uh, they, they were completely against us. 
Uh, and we, we sort of caught their hands uh, in the cookie jar on that. Well, let's talk about how this, this unrolls. So you're in late January. You now see there is a proposal to simply repeal the country's longest standing Bill of Rights. Uh, did you think it had a chance? Yes. Uh, you know, simply put, yes. Uh, we, we thought it would have a chance to, to get repealed. Um, and, and we thought it we thought we thought it was going to be repealed. It was about what was going to be an adequate replacement for it. Um, and that wasn't really being discussed. Nobody was really talking about what we're going to do to replace the law enforcement officers. Bill of Rights. In the summer, we had discussed this lead act, which it didn't repeal the LEOBR, but it significantly altered the provisions of the LEOBR. So we still had a framework. Senate Bill 627 didn't provide a framework, um, and that's what the scary part was. I mean, Senate Bill 627 was simply this. Uh, if you're an officer and you were, an, uh, you were accused of uh, an administrative violation, uh, the chief would designate someone to investigate that uh, potential violation. So that would likely be the Internal Affairs Division. The Internal Affairs Division would uh, investigate and uh, write a report of its findings, a summary of its findings. That summary will go to the chief of police, and the chief, without giving you any due process, could decide to terminate you right then and there. Uh, if the chief found that there were disputed facts, the chief could give you a hearing board. That hearing board would consist of one hand-picked officer by the chief, who would sit and hear the facts of the case. There was no provision that the officer would be entitled to counsel or anything like that. Uh, so presumably the officer would just be talking to this hearing board uh, chairperson that was picked by the chief. If at the end of that trial, the hearing board chairperson found you guilty, that finding would go to the chief and the chief would be able to take disciplinary action up to termination. If that hearing board chairperson found you not guilty, that finding could go to the chief. The chief could reverse the not guilty, make it guilty, and fire you still. Uh, that's what Senate Bill 627 had to offer. <laughs> you know, so, so that's not due process at all. And, and unfortunately, we found out that that Chiefs and Sheriffs Association that I mentioned earlier, they supported that bill, uh, you know, because it would, it would have given them uh, full autonomy. It would have given them all of the power. And so they supported the full repeal and they, they supported that as a replacement. Uh, so take us through the legislative process. How do we get from late January, the repeal of the Bill of Rights is on the table, to eventually what happens uh, in April? So, you know, it took a it took a whole bunch of work uh, from the FOP. Like, like I said, we immediately went to work on, um, you know, our public relations strategy and campaign. We knew that we were going to need uh, to change public perception and opinion in the state. So we hired a PR firm uh, that, that set out to do that. We came up with a public-facing website called keepmarylandsafe.com, and that website still exists today. Uh, and that website, we have testimonials from police officers who are in uniform. Uh, we have uh, pre-drafted 
um, you know, sort of letters that if you type in your information, there, there's a take action button. If you click the take action button, we've, we've pre-drafted three letters that uh, after putting in your information and your address, uh, sends that letter directly to your local senator uh, or Congress uh, person or, or whoever we designate. Um, and, you know, the letter says something to the effect of support law enforcement. This is a bad bill, you know, whatever we need it. Uh, and so uh, we came up with that public-facing website, and uh, when Senate Bill 627 was dropped, we immediately mobilized our supporters, our family members, our officers, our our friends, uh, and we had them visit the site, uh, and they all hit, you know, the take action button. And it got to the point that so many emails were being sent, uh, and, and this was focused specifically on the Judicial Proceedings Committee in the Senate, uh, because that's where Senate Bill 627 uh, landed after it was dropped. Uh, we had so many emails being sent uh, to the to the committee that their staff uh, was contacting our lobbyists saying, can you call off the dog? Uh, my office has received 500 emails today. We can't handle the volume. We can't handle the volume of emails. We can't handle the volume of phone calls that we're getting. You have to stop. We get the message. Um, and so, you know, we that that website uh, turned out to be uh, an incredibly effective tool at letting our legislators know that, hey, we're, we're not just going to roll over here. Now, uh, the, the, the ACLU and, and other special interest groups, they have the same sort of thing at play. Uh, the Fraternal Order of Police, uh, we had not, though. So we, we thought it best to enter that game uh, and, and sort of, um, you know, uh, take that approach to letting our, you know, our legislators know how we really felt about these things. So, so we used that grassroots effort to our benefit. And really, it came down to a lot of lobbying. I mean, we testified. Uh, we stayed up for hours, you know, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning every morning on strategy sessions. Um, you know, and we really weren't afraid to talk to legislators from both sides of the aisle. Uh, we talked to Republicans uh, as much as we talked to Democrats. Uh, and we were able to, to sway uh, a lot of votes uh, to our side. Uh, and so once we found out that the Chiefs and the Sheriff's Association supported this, it really sort of put us in a bind. Because obviously the ACLU, the other driving factor in this, they supported the full repeal. And then we had the chiefs and the sheriffs supporting the full repeal. And so we had the chairman of the, you know, of the Judicial Proceedings Committee say, look, you, you guys might be the odd people out. I mean, you know, the chiefs and sheriffs who, who get to wear their, their uniforms down to Annapolis and, and you know, they're, they're seen as law enforcement officers because, they, you know, they're, they're wearing a uniform when they testify and you know, then you have the ACLU folks. And so, you know, it's, it's you two, uh, you know, versus the FOP. Uh, and so, uh, and, 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 and that sort of put us in a real bind. So we called the chiefs out on it. Uh, we, we had an emergency FOP meeting, um, you know, state lodge meeting where we had all of our local presidents uh, on the call. And we told them that we, we understand that the chiefs and sheriffs are supporting this repeal. Uh, with the replacement that I described earlier. Uh, and you need to get off this call right now and you need to call your chief or your sheriff and you need to, you need to call them on the carpet. You need to see whether or not they support due process rights for police officers. Uh, you need to ask them directly. 
<clears throat> do they support the repeal of the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights? Do they support their rank-and-file officers that they're going out there and asking to do a, an incredibly difficult job? Do they support them not having any rights? And so that's what all of our presidents did. They all called around to their chiefs and their sheriffs. And what we found out by the end of the day that uh, was that this Chiefs and Sheriffs Association was not speaking for the vast majority of chiefs and sheriffs in the state of Maryland. In fact, our local lodge president told us, no, my chief doesn't support that. My chief's willing to write a letter saying that, that he or she doesn't support that. Uh, we even had one sheriff uh, take, take to the podium and do a press conference uh, the next day saying, I don't support uh, the repeal of the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights. Our officers deserve due process. Uh, and so that really threw a monkey wrench in the Chiefs and the Sheriff's Association plan. And ultimately, we were able to get at so much confusion uh, within the Judicial Proceedings Committee, you know, because the, the committee initially thought that it had both the ACLU and the Chiefs and Sheriffs, uh, you know, sort of in their back pocket on this repeal. But when we had sheriffs coming to and making press conferences saying, no, I don't support this. And we, and we had sheriffs going to the newspaper saying, no, I don't support this. Uh, that really sort of put them uh, in a posture where they, they looked very disorganized. Uh, and, so, and so we came out on top. We were able to sort of come in with our message and say, look, you, you, know, you don't even have complete buy-in from the chiefs and sheriffs. And, you know, and so ultimately, uh, without going into too much more detail, we were able to kill Senate Bill 627. Uh, which was the 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 you know the bill um, initially proposed uh, by the senator from Baltimore on the repeal of the law enforcement officers' bill of rights. What do you end up, what, when all is said and done and the dust settles? What do you end up with? So we we, we get to the house and and there's House Bill six seventy, which uh, calls for the repeal of the law enforcement officers' bill of rights. Uh, but, but sort of lays out a framework for how the disciplinary process is to go. Uh, and so, you know, we worked our members in the House, uh, and we said, we need this in the bill. We need this in the bill. We need this. We need the right to obtain counsel. We need a trial board process if an officer or a hearing board process if an officer is accused. We need that hearing board process to be at the officer's discretion, whether or not they want the process. We need the results of that process to be final and that the chief can't just overturn it. Uh, And so we really worked hard and we lobbied. uh, And and ultimately, on the uh, two days prior to the session, we had a a workable bill uh, in Senate Bill uh, 670, or I'm sorry, House Bill 670. uh, And and the governor, uh, you know, Fortunately, vetoed the bill. Um, but again, as we as we discussed earlier, Maryland's uh, legislature overrode the, the veto, and so we were left with uh, the Maryland uh, Police Accountability Act of 2021, which is now the new, uh, which will be the new law of land uh, next year. Uh, and so, what that basically says is is that um, you know the police officer has the right. Uh, to decide whether or not they want a hearing board if they're accused. Um, it says that each uh, jurisdiction, each county has to come up with a police accountability board, uh, and that board will be responsible for uh, placing members on the, the police charging committee, which every agency has to have now, a police charging committee made up of civilians and uh, things like that who are going to review internal affairs investigations and 
see whether or not charges are warranted. Uh, if charges are warranted and the officer wants to go to a hearing board, the officer can choose that hearing board at his or her discretion. Uh, and that hearing board will now consist of a retired circuit or district court judge or administrative law judge will serve as the chairperson of the board. A trained civilian with 40 hours of Maryland Police Training Commission uh, training on police disciplinary procedures and an officer of equal rank. Uh, and so the chief gets to, to place the officer of equal rank on, but we still think that we'll be able to negotiate around how the how the uh, judge is selected and how the civilian is selected. So we're pretty positive about that. Um, and then the results of that hearing board are final, and, and the disciplinary recommendation by that, the hearing board is really no longer a recommendation. It's, it's, it's you know, the discipline that they decide on is really going to be final. The, the, you know, it's going to be done in accordance with a disciplinary matrix, uh, and so there'll be a range, and this board will uh, determine what range the officer should get in discipline, and the chief can't really go over that range. Uh, so if the range is between a you know ten dollar fine and a letter of reprimand, the chief can't increase that determination as they could today. Okay. Uh, so uh, we think that there were some positives. A few, a few, few questions about this. Well, um, first of all, can this uh, complaint board? Can it? Uh, excuse me. Once it makes a decision, a recommendation, which you described as virtually binding, could the chief impose? greater discipline than the complaint board recommended? So the, 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 the way that it will work is that, so let's say within this range, if I am charged with, you know, failing to wear the right color sock, and ultimately the board finds me guilty of failing to wear the right color sock, uh, in this range, it'll be a, a $5 fine, a letter of reprimand, or a one-day suspension. And that'll be the range for this particular uh, offense. The board may say, I'm just going to impose the $5 fine and have this be done. The chief could, within that range, go up. So the chief could say, no, I want to do a one-day suspension, which would be higher than the, the $5 you know, fine. So, yes, in theory, the chief can increase it, but the chief can't increase it past the established range in accordance with the matrix. And the ranges, how are the ranges determined? Well, that, that we still don't know. <laughs> the Maryland Police Training Commission uh, is in the process of, of sort of deciding what those ranges are. We've seen framework for it, but nothing is, you know, uh, definite yet. But the Training Commission, which is Maryland's equivalent of a post board, will decide on what the range is. Yes, they, they will decide on what the range is. What about uh, the other important features of the Bill of Rights, like a statute of limitations and the right to representation and the manner in which interviews are going to be conducted, that sort of thing? Yeah, so uh, I can tell you that, you know, all of that was left out of the initial proposals by both the House and the Senate. Um, you know, it, it left out basic employment rights that would that, that any other employee um, in any other jurisdiction would be entitled to. For example, the the right to expunge records. Um, you know, anybody can expunge their records. Uh, the, the the Senate and the House proposals uh, would have made that uh, not doable, and and, and ultimately, the Maryland 
uh, Police Accountability Act uh, says that you cannot expunge records moving forward. Uh, so that was something that we were not successful on. The right to engage in political activity. Neither the House or the Senate proposal uh, had that, uh, provided that for officers. We were able to get that back into the, to the final bill. Uh, the right to engage in secondary employment, part-time uh, work, uh, neither the House or the Senate uh, provided for that. We were able to get that back in. Uh, a no-retaliation clause, uh, right for an officer to sue, right for representation during an interrogation, uh, fees for discovery, uh, a clear process for how investigations are conducted. Um, hearing boards at the officers, uh, you know, at the, at the officers choosing, as, as I mentioned, all of those things were left out, uh, both the House and the Senate, uh, original bill, uh, but, but were things that the fraternal order of police were successful in, in getting back into the final bill. So, you know, as we've talked to our members since the session ended, and, our, and you know, we really don't think a lot of them understood what we were really up against. Uh, this wasn't just about not having a right to a trial board anymore. This was about all of the other basic employment rights that you were afforded now as a police officer and that, frankly, every other city or county employee is entitled to um, that, that you would no longer have been entitled to. So so we had to fight tooth and nail to get those things, those basic things, uh, back into the final law. Uh, and, and fortunately, we were successful. Now, we, we did find out that Senator Carter's plan all along was to have all of that taken out. Um, you know, uh, some of our legislators really view us as less than the average employee. So that's, you know, it, it's like we we want to hold police officers to, to a higher standard, uh, but we want to strip away everything that they're able to do in the process. So, you know, they can't even sue the department if they need to, or they, you know, they, they, they can't, uh, you know, they can't engage in political activity. I mean, it, it, it was just ridiculous, some of the things that we saw. Uh, and, you know, uh, what they would say is, oh, you guys shouldn't be treated better uh, than anybody than any other employee. And we would say, yeah, and we shouldn't be treated any worse than any other employee either. So that was sort of some of what we were up against. And uh, you have not mentioned in the course of this conversation the notion of binding arbitration. That's going to sound foreign to some of our listeners uh, because binding arbitration in many states is the primary way discipline is appealed. But that's not the case in Maryland. Never has been the case in Maryland, right? Right. No. And so, um, you know, in, in Maryland and, in, 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 you know, there are very few cases that I'm aware of where um, discipline has been overturned. Um, very, very few. And, and, and generally speaking, you know, the, the, we're, we're able to appeal to the circuit court for procedural uh, issues that may have arisen during a hearing process or during the investigation process. We can appeal for uh, procedural violations, um, but really nothing else. Uh, and so the notion that... Um, you know, uh, the FOP was standing in the way of discipline by appealing cases and things like that. That was just, it couldn't be farther from the truth because we, you know, the law didn't really permit us to appeal for anything other than procedural violations. So if the, if the trial board, if statute of limitations, for example, 
um, had run its course, we could appeal and say they didn't bring the case in a timely manner. And a judge might look at that and say, yep, they're right. We have to go back. Um, but it wasn't, you know, based on the facts of the case. And so that was another sort of misconception that our legislature had, um, you know, as it relates to arbitration. Um, yeah, I, I guess that, that, that would be my answer on that. Well, uh, the as I've looked at it over the years, it seemed to me that if you're appealing discipline in Maryland, the, there are two primary routes of doing it. One is to go to a civil service board or a commission for those jurisdictions that have that. And then the second would be the internal trial board, that sort of mechanism that's described by the, uh, or was described by the Bill of Rights. Uh, is that a good summary? Yeah, that, that is. And, and I'll tell you that the, the personnel board or civil service boards rarely uh, overturn any disciplinary cases. I haven't seen it. Uh, in my time uh, as president uh, of my local lodge, we've made several appeals and they've gone nowhere. They've been uh, sort of dismissed. Uh, and, and the trial board, which uh, I'll tell you that, you know, the trial board process uh, in my time as, as a union, elected union leader, uh, more people are found guilty uh, and disciplined than not. Um, you know, usually the trial board is sort of like a, a last, uh, ditch effort to try to to try to mitigate the circumstances of a case and maybe be heard and um, but but you know generally speaking our trial boards are finding people guilty at a at a pretty high clip in the state of Maryland so to suggest that this whole process is flawed uh, and it's just officers covering for each other it, it really uh, it, we didn't understand it uh, because that's not what we have seen that there's no evidence to suggest that. Um, you know, I know in my department alone over the past five years, we've probably fired somewhere in the area of 10 to 15, uh, officers, uh, following trial boards. And we probably only won during that time, uh, three or four trial boards where, where we've outright won them. So, um, so, so, yeah, I, I think the numbers are, are heavily in favor of the, the trial board. Is if the, if the facts are there to, to find you guilty, they're going to do that. And and then the chief of the sheriff has the ability to, to terminate you following that. And, and, and nothing about the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights has ever stood in the way of that. Well, what you're describing is something that is really kind of fascinating. It's uh, that the Bill of Rights created a set of procedures that had to be followed in the disciplinary process. Uh, and while you, you tended to have compliance with those procedures at the local law enforcement level, uh, if in fact there were lawsuits in which employees alleged that the procedures were violated, they generally were uh, unsuccessful. And that certainly has been my read of the cases coming out of the courts of appeal in Maryland is that it's very rare that an officer actually wins a claim that the Bill of Rights has been violated. And that, that, that's absolutely right. I, I am aware of one officer uh, in, in my time that I know of that, that won a case uh, on, on appeal for uh, a procedural violation and had to be reinstated to, to his uh, to his job after that. So we're talking on those 20 years. I've worked in multiple jurisdictions. 
uh, and um, I'm aware of one. So, so it, it doesn't happen very often. So, so you have this the statute, the Bill of Rights, that does not get officers their jobs back as a result of procedural violations and does not control the substantive rules for discipline, whether someone should be getting a five-day suspension or a demotion or a reprimand or terminated or whatever. Uh, it's not providing any substantive rights. And yet this statute becomes the focus for the police reform movement in Maryland, the notion being that this statute that doesn't have much in the way of guarantees of procedural or substantive rights is somehow keeping bad cops on the job. That sounds like what you're describing, Will. Yeah, you know, I, I, I can't explain it, Will. I, I can't, I don't understand it. Um, I mean, the closest I can get to understanding it uh, is uh, when that legislator told us the Bill of Rights is so confusing to us that we just don't understand it and it's got to go. Uh, and if I don't vote for this, I'm going to be labeled a racist. Uh, in fact, we had, uh, you know, the ACLU and, and their their followers had really mobilized and, and were sort of uh, camping out outside of the Senate president's house the Speaker of the House's House, uh, the chairperson of the Judicial Proceedings Committee's House during the session, lighting off fireworks at 2 o'clock in the morning, screaming, causing a ruckus, uh, because they were, quote-unquote, demanding a repeal of the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights. Of course, uh, our brave men and women in uniform uh, went uh, to those locations and provided round-the-clock security for them, uh, uh, to make sure that they were safe. Uh, all the while, they were coming to Annapolis and stripping away our rights. But I, I don't, I don't understand how how they were able to connect those dots that somehow the law enforcement officers' bill of rights was responsible for uh, you know officers not being disciplined. Uh, it, it never made any sense to me. Like I said, I've been will in this for eighteen years now, and. Uh, the, the vast majority of trial boards, I would give the number 80 to 85 percent of trial boards that I've gone to, uh, the officers been convicted, um, you know, and, 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 and disciplined up to termination in some of those cases following a conviction. Uh, so it has never stood in the way. I think it was just too confusing. And, and you know, I think the other factor here uh, is that it was called the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. Uh, I think it um, insinuated that we were somehow given some special rights that other people weren't given. As I mentioned to you earlier, though, uh, most counties in the state of Maryland have a county employee's bill of rights, which does the exact same thing. spells out the disciplinary process, talks about your right to engage in political activity, uh, talks about um, all types of employment rights. Uh, cities in the state of Maryland have city employee bill of rights, but because this was called the law enforcement officers bill of rights, it was viewed as some sort of special uh, right that we were given over and above other people. And again, that couldn't be farther from the truth. It, it was just a framework for how discipline was supposed to be handled. And nobody took the time 
uh, or or wanted to uh, to hear that uh, or to or to learn that. And even those who did, uh, they were afraid of the ACLU shooting fireworks off at their house at 2 a.m. Uh, so they got on the train. Uh, and so that's what we were up against this session, uh, a really impossible situation. Uh, but we, I think we made the best of it, and we, we come away with due process. And, well, uh, you've heard me talk about police reform legislation in a seminar, and uh, I end my presentation with lessons to be drawn from this. And one of the lessons that that... I try to tell everybody if you're facing police reform legislation is facts don't matter. Messaging matters, but the facts don't matter. And what you've said absolutely is consistent with that notion. Absolutely. I mean, there was, there was no amount of uh, factual information that we were going to be able to provide this session that was going to turn the tide. Uh, we came with nothing but facts. Uh, in fact, uh, during the session, uh, the, uh, the Black Police Officers Association, um, they uh, essentially lodged a complaint against the Maryland State Police alleging, you know, sort of uh, racial discrimination in the disciplinary process for black officers. And what they said was is that, you know, if uh, Officer A, who is black, uh, gets charged administratively for wearing the wrong color sock, uh, he, if, if found guilty, is disciplined uh, more severely than Officer B, who is white, charged with the same thing. Uh, and so uh, they, they, they went uh, to the media, uh, and they, they uh, brought this allegation. Uh, and, and we said during the session, the SOP, uh, this is exactly what, Repealing the LEOBR is going to lead to more of. Uh, you are you are you are saying that the, the state police, the, the troopers are saying that we're both found guilty of this. Uh, and when it gets uh, to the place where uh, the chief and they have a superintendent, so I don't think the superintendent handles the discipline. I think they uh, relegate that to some disciplinary board within the state police. But when it gets to that board, they're saying that that board is. Uh, disciplining black officers more severely than they are uh, white officers. And we're saying that without due process, uh, you know, what do you think is going to happen then? Um, you know, that, that's part of the reason the LEOBR came online in the 70s is, is for that reason specifically, uh, the, the disproportionate treatment of African-American and minority officers. So you're telling us that you want to repeal uh, a law that ensures that due process is going to be handled. Now, when it gets to the, the chief to make the determination on discipline, that's a that's another thing we can talk about how we do that moving forward. But you're saying we're gonna we're gonna strip that away. Uh, you know, we're not even going to give you due process. We're not going to give you a an opportunity to be heard on the case. Uh, and if you are heard on the case, it'll be somebody that's handpicked by the chief. You know, just this. You know, so it just really didn't make sense to us. And, and so that complaint that they made uh, right during the session, we took that right to the legislature and said, look, this, this is what we've been saying all along was going to happen. And it's already happening with the LEOBR in place. What do you think is going to happen when it's not in place? Uh, but again, no amount of factual information, no amount of evidence, no amount of anything that we were going to be able to provide them uh, was going to change the tide here. They were hell bent on repealing uh, and, and they did. 
And, and well, let me end this uh, interview. You've been really generous with your time with us. Let me end it the same way I end that seminar presentation on police reform, only let me shift the onus onto you. You've been through this now. You've been up till two in the morning working members of the legislature. You've had to deal with the ACLU camping outside the homes, the private homes of uh, individual legislators. You've had to deal with a push to amend and eventually repeal a system of procedural rights that really had no impact on who was disciplined in Maryland. What lessons can you give somebody in a Michigan or a Florida or wherever it might be uh, about how they should be ready to deal with the police reform movement coming to their legislature? Well, I would say that, you know, I think it'll be important uh, for unions to talk about hiring uh, public relations firms to help set their narrative. Um, and not just during the legislative session, uh, but year round. Uh, what special interest groups like the ACLU are effective at is painting law enforcement officers as rigid uh, and unwilling to, to see others' points of view uh, and unwilling to change. Uh, you know, that we're in fact resistant to change uh, and that we don't care about the opinions of others. And a PR firm can help change that and to help uh, get public opinion back on our side. Uh, they can also help with a grassroots campaign uh, and an email campaign and a public-facing website, uh, which we use to, to sort of rally our legislators uh, behind our cause. Um, I would also suggest that unions start thinking about crafting their own police reform packages and have them introduced before the other side has a chance to introduce theirs. You know, as law enforcement officers, we've talked for years, and we can all think of things within our department. Uh, or our local or state statutes that could be reformed. Um, you know, why are internal affairs investigations allowed to go on for a seeming indefinite amount of time? Why are uh, officers uh, placed on desk duty for two to three years before administrative charges are brought? Um, you know, do you think your department could benefit from enhanced training? Uh, these are all things that uh, local organizations should be considering as a part of a police reform package that you initiate. Um, letting the other side initiate their package of reforms first allows them to set the narrative. Uh, and even worse, uh, if you don't have a package to submit, it places us on our heels and puts us in a, defense, you know, a defensive posture. So, um, you know, we need to be on the offensive. The police reform train uh, will be arriving at a state capitol near you. Uh, and if you aren't ready, uh, you're going to be in a reactionary posture rather than a proactive one. So, so we need to start setting our own narrative. We need to start thinking about our own police reform packages. We can all think of things that need to be reformed. The final lesson uh, that I learned is in, and and you know this will sound cliche, but is is in never giving up. You know, we we managed to save due process in the state of Maryland. You know, while we took some things on the chin, uh, we still have a process officers must go through before being disciplined or terminated. Uh, there were many times uh, where we believed 
there wouldn't be much we were going to be able to do to save due process. The legislature, uh, they had the vote, as was evidenced by the governor's veto. You know, they overrode the governor's veto in a matter of hours. So they had the vote to do whatever it was that they wanted to do. And at the beginning of the session, they wanted a full repeal of the LEOBR with no substantive replacement. Or the replacement that they wanted was just to give the chiefs of police all the power. Um, They had special interest groups. They had the ACLU. Uh, We were sort of on an island by ourselves. Uh, But we didn't quit. Uh, We worked both sides of the aisle. We worked both chambers of our legislature. Uh, We were able to flip legislators to our side, and we were able to get some semblance of due process. So don't ever hold up the tent. You know, we were outmanned. We were outmoneyed, most likely, uh, by the special interests. But we hung in there, and we made the case. And we walked away bruised and beaten. Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, we had 20,000 officers in the state of Maryland depending on us and, and other states, I'm sure, that you all have. Uh, similar numbers of officers depending on you. So we've been through it. We're here to help with any strategy. Uh, but none of it's going to matter uh, if you take the opinion that all hope is lost. So I guess my last piece of advice would be to get off the mat, get back in the fight. Well, thank you so much for this interview. I'm guessing some people will be taking you up on your offer uh, and getting in touch with you. Uh, we'll make sure we post your home address and home phone number on our website. Uh, never mind. As, as, long, as long as folks aren't outside at 2 a.m. shooting fireworks off, that's fine with me. You know, it, uh, thankfully, it, 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 if it had to happen to somebody in our law firm, it happened to my law partner, Anil Karia. They came out to his home at midnight one night and, and, oh, no. and, and did their thing. Uh, it, and I'll tell you, it's, it's a different world that we are in. Well, yep. uh, uh, thank you, Will. And folks, uh, that's, uh, that's it. That's our special podcast with Will Milam, who's been very integrally involved in uh, attempting to defend against the police reform movement in Maryland. We hope you join us for future interview podcasts that we'll do at LRIS. Remember, we've got some seminars coming up on police wellness and grievances and arbitration. You can check all that out at LRIS.com. This is Will Aitchison signing off.